0: Welcome to a new edition of the Mind-Gut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about the latest ideas from thought leaders in the area of health, food, the science of mind-body interactions and the environment. Today, I had the great pleasure to speak to Dr. Nancy Zucker, a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University School of Medicine, who is a renowned expert in the area of eating disorders. Dr. Zucker is a clinician, researcher, and teacher at Duke, where she founded and directs the Duke Center for Eating Disorders. She is the author of numerous professional publications, as well as an author of the upcoming revised practice guidelines for the treatment of eating disorders from the American Psychiatric Association. Dr. Zucker's major clinical and research interest is in understanding how to help young people develop a healthy awareness of their body's signals, a process referred to as interoception in biology and learn how to match these two actions that allow them to flourish. Her research and clinical work has been featured on ABC's Nightline, the BBC, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Time magazine and other major news outlets. I had the pleasure of interacting with Dr. Zucker scientifically over many years, most recently on a scientific publication about the brain changes in patients with anorexia nervosa. Welcome to the show, Dr. Zucker. Yeah, so let me, let me start out with asking you, uh, can you, can you briefly describe how you got into, um, pursue a career in eating disorder uh, and specifically in anorexia nervosa?
1: Yeah, so um, kind of a, um, an interesting story in the sense that I was, when I was in college, I spent a year living in a sorority house, and in the back of the house was a bathroom that was kind of known as the vomitorium, where wow. women would go self-induced vomiting, and at, at the time, it so happened that there was a researcher at the, uh, at where I was going to school, um, Linda Craighead, who was developing really body focused interventions for bulimia nervosa. And so the, kind of the combination of seeing running into friends who are struggling in my daily life and having the capacity to help develop an intervention that would would help was kind of very compelling. And I was hooked.
0: And so you've you have pursued this ever ever since. That's, that's actually... Ever
1: since there's been a few times I've tried to diversify and <laughs> study
0: other things, but I seem to always get pulled back into it. So, yeah, that's that's really cool. I mean, I'm I'm not an anorexia or eating disorder expert, if anything, you know, the kind of eating disorder that that our group has sort of gotten interested in, besides collaborating with 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 you um, has been food addiction, which, you know, is sort of the other end of the spectrum. But how how big a problem is is anorexia nervosa in the U.S. population, and have the prevalence numbers increased, particularly during, uh, you know, the 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 era of uh, social media? Yeah.
1: So it's so the prevalence for anorexia tens has historically been about one percent, but in, in recent years, especially. With COVID, there, you know, there has been just a reported just startling increase in, in um, programs for eating disorders, reporting an escalation in the number of cases that they're seeing. And the and the one trend that seems to be happening around the world is that the, the incidence of anRS is getting younger. So it's emerging at younger ages. And we don't quite know why, but social media certainly is a a likely candidate if you think about individuals who are genetically vulnerable, biologically vulnerable, and they encounter environmental triggers to, you know, to instigate the onset of something social media would certainly be a likely target with just you know individuals, um, you know some individuals teaching you how to have an eating disorder or, or engage in excessive exercise or do a lot of healthier, extreme weight loss behaviors. So vulnerable kids could see that stuff and and copy along.
0: Yeah, I mean the things that I've experienced with with uh, with social media is a sort of a you know uh, an, an observation that that it seems like um, you know young women that that pose in uh, you know in their bikinis and um you know easily reach like hundreds of thousands of followers with almost like often meaningless you know postings and um so there must be a tremendous um you know encouragement to do that I mean just to, to look yeah. to look beautiful on on a on an instagram post
1: and, and, it, and it's right it's it's tragically sad right in terms of you know, like where and you in terms of kind of female em- empowerment. right? And wanting to get people to know people authentically and see into people's souls and all that and to think that is this are we just objectifying ourselves. By doing this kind of thing, you know, and not, you know, really um, giving ourselves portraying ourselves as the complex individuals that we are by by having posts like that and feeling pressured to post things like that and feeling compelled to post things like that.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that was actually, you know, this, this, this question has, has that been tracked at all in, in, in terms of, you know, the relationship of social media with with the with the prevalence and uh
1: there there have been some things so what has been um it looked at is the the manner in which people engage with social media so it might not necessarily be a, a prevalent frequency thing like it it's not necessarily a ghost response like the more you do it the the more dangerous it is it's more how you do it that the research has shown so far so um, there's this feature called social comparison you know which which we all do you know where you or but but to bear to very varying degrees right so if you you know it's one thing to look at social media and to have your friend you know have a lovely time with other friends and say oh isn't it lovely that my friend had such lovely time with other friends and it's very different to make it self-referential to say like oh you know my friend had such a lovely friend with other friends i didn't have that much i didn't have as much fun as them you know uh, like i'm I'm not as well liked as them. I was invited and to, to kind of make everything that you see, make yourself feel worse by comparison. And so when you engage with social media in that way, that seems to be a very toxic way to go about engaging with it. And you end up feeling worse about yourself and, and then try to do things to what, you know, follow the formulas then that you're given, improve your popularity, eat differently, exercise differently, et cetera.
0: Yeah, um, you know, we've often talked about this high comorbidity that um, that anorexia nervosa has with other uh, mental disorders, in particularly anxiety disorders. Um, could you explain this briefly, why you think there's such a close link with with anxiety disorders as a, as a risk factor, I guess, and a comorbidity?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a kind of a million dollar question, right, you know, so but it's really interesting, right, when you think about anxiety disorders are some of the most prevalent disorders and they often usually come before anorexia so they emerge earlier in life right and then only if you know roughly 18 percent of individuals at a time will have an anxiety disorder and one person has anorexia it's interesting to think about what is what is it about it can't be anxiety in general right anxiety in combination with certain metabolic risk factors i'm very interested as as you are and and Gut-related risk factors in terms of early um, GI events that increase preoccupation with the gut, diet, you know, diet manipulations as a way to, to feel better, and all those in combination with anxiety as being a, a vulnerability for anorexia. In fact, we have a, a cohort study that was published several months ago that showed that recurrent abdominal pain actually increased the risk of um, fasting and. In girls using it, the ALSPAC data cohort, so showing that in fact, right, these GI events could be could be vulnerability factors for for anorexia later on.
0: Interesting, yeah. So you know, you 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 sort of addressed this this, this topic about uh, I guess both of us are very interested in in brain gut interactions and possibly brain gut microbiome interactions. Um, so I was just going to ask you the, you know what role does the gut play in this? So this could be a, a trigger or to uh, out of this pool of patients with anxiety disorders, so some have GI symptoms and develop IBS, others, you know, have some GI event that might uh, shift them towards anorexia. Is, is, is that a good?
1: Yeah, it's right. I think that's a really accurate way to put it. You know, once you once you have anorexia, you know, the, the pr- prevalence of GI events is like 95%, you know, just like, like every, you know, everyone with anorexia, you know, by virtue of So we know that starvation exacerbates, you know, GI events, right? But this notion that they could be a, a triggering force, right? That can, then it get, gets worse or gets different because of starvation. And then of course, we, you know, we know kind of attention amplified, um, you know, can make, can make things worse, you know, or the quality of attention can make things worse, but it's certainly, um, their dietary habits is not improving their GI symptoms. So it just seems kind of a, a vulnerability exacerbated by anorexia and then making recovery harder, right? Cause they're uncomfortable, right? They're more focused on their gut and all these things. And none of our um, attention strategies incorporate that, you know, don't, you know, don't specifically try to you know, have diets that would make um, GI events, you know, improve GI events or address this kind of gut hypervigilance. So it's so it's a it's a gap um, that we need to really address. So there's
0: no there's no specific diet that's being recommended. I mean, so we're you know yeah. just just in the middle of writing this review article um, on uh, nutritional psychiatry and. Um, we hadn't really included anorexia in it, and then one of the reviewers comment on this, you know, uh, one of the most common psychiatric disorders is anorexia. Why didn't you, uh, you know, include this in this article? And since it's about diet, um, you know, I wasn't really aware of uh, significant literature that, that you could discuss there. So is that correct?
1: That it, it is correct. It's, you know, it's really, it's, you know, to, to our field's credit, right, it's, it's challenging in the, in the sense that you know, so you have people who are, you know, so one of the core features of anorexia is this fear of weight gain. And so what happens is, and with that avoidance of, a, of foods, you know, high calorie, high fat food, you know, whatever the, the kind of the point, the declared poison is of the moment. And so when you're an interventionist, you know, what, what you're trying to do is have individuals who are afraid of things approach things that they're afraid of. And so they're kind of just trying to, you know, don't be, you know, have this, eat this, this, and that, and the other, and the, and they're and they're so obsessive about certain types of food and not certain types of food. It really has been let's increase comfort across the broad range of foods, which makes complete sense. But what gets missed is this notion of we could actually, you know, make, change one's relationship with food if we really thought about their microbiome about, you know, the things that would kind of suit them best. And then they might, because I, I think of the core anorexia as being body distrust. And so if we could introduce diets that kind of catered to what people understood about their gut health, what, you know, would that make them feel more safe? Would that make them feel more trusting and really more um, connected with their bodies? So I think it's a really interesting thing to think about for future future research.
0: I mean, it seems to be something that, you know, um, I don't know, it was Michael Poland or somebody has called this the national eating disorder that we're going through increasingly. Um, I mean, during the pandemic, you know, the number I mean, the number of podcasts that I've done, you know, on this on this topic, um, gut health and, um, uh, you know, gut immune health and <clears throat> and there seems to be this this total confusion of what's actually you know good for somebody for somebody's gut health you would think in the meantime with all these books and 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 internet um, information that's out there you know people wouldn't ask that question so commonly but it it hasn't gotten better so um, if anything and and i'm sure this does include people with anorexia as as well but but in general it's 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 the lay public that is completely worried about what to eat, what's yeah. good for me, what's bad for me. You know, uh, yeah. how how can I keep my weight down? So it seems like anorexia is really just the tip of the iceberg of something much sure. larger.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. and what's so interesting about it, right, is this this notion that being anxious about it, right, which of course and people with anorexia are, but but the lay public is increasingly right, just kind of amplifies right any gut. You know reactivity, and so you know so the so the folklore that people develop about I can eat this and not eat that is is hopelessly complicated by their their anxious reactions to what they think mm-hmm. will work or not work, and so it gets quite confusing.
0: You mentioned briefly the you know the microbiome as well. I mean, has are there any? I mean, I should know the, the answer to this question, but I, I thought it would be good to ask you as well. Are there any? Um, Is there any good evidence that that you think is trustworthy in terms of microbes playing, so not just being involved secondarily when you're fasting, obviously you will change your your gut microbes, um, but that they might play a a primary role that there's a particular gut microbial species producing a neuroactive metabolite. Um, You know, uh, some of these have become, uh, have shown up in different disorders from autism spectrum to uh, to seemingly unrelated, you know, cognitive decline like uh, these indoles. Wow. Have you seen any, any evidence that there's any convincing evidence that, that microbes may play a primary role, or are they just like part of this, this brain gut uh, microbiome system? That
1: yeah. it's, it's such a great question. You know, so studies on anorexia are always so hard to do at the population level. Right, because the prevalence is is low. Right, and so the ideal study, right, would be tracking the microbiome of you know a cohort of adolescent, you know, prepubertal adolescents over time, and, and looking at kind of you know microbiome vulnerability factors. And and to my knowledge, um, that that has not been found, but. Even speaking here there certainly is the studies that you mentioned though characterizing abnormalities in, in the microbiome of, of individuals who have been ill and even some that have been weight restored
0: you know so we've worked together our, our groups have worked together on a comprehensive research study on um, on on uh, uh, looking at changes in brain networks in anorexia nervosa patients and um, you know pointing towards uh, Pretty plausible changes in some of these networks. I mean, could you just summarize what, what you think for you the most important findings of the study were and what consequences has for your for your work, like for your interventions?
1: So right. so I think, you know, that when I try to explain the, the essence of anorexia nervosa to people so they can kind of really get into the headspace of, of people who experience it, I really explain it as just a fundamental distrust of one's body. So you just, you know, so your body, you know, like your stomach growls, right? And you don't trust that that's really hunger. You think that there's something wrong with your metabolism that's misfiring somehow, or, you know, you get some signals, you know, and so there's this, and if you think about, you know, how fundamental, of course, our relationship with our body is in terms of knowing what emotions that we feel and in, in being able to be responsive and nourish ourselves when hungry, sleep when tired, and that sort of thing. So to me, that's the essence of anorexia, and and that's what our network study to me like showed, right? That the sensory motor network, the signaling, um, the you know the kind of the health of that network, the communication um, consistency of that network was impaired, for lack of a better word, relative to typically developing controls, and so kind of a you know you know neuro you know a neurobiological kind of correlate of of this kind of this unreliable signaling right from from the sensor motor network so that was the part that I was most excited about and so in answer to your question the the way I've the, where my research has gone over the years is I keep going younger and younger to try to find a where you know if you want to teach kids to trust their bodies where do you start and so, you know, I started working with adults. Now I'm at five year olds, probably by the time I retire, I'll be, you know, little, you know, working with sperm, you know, who knows, what I'll, you know, but, but at, the, you know, at this point I'm at five to nine year olds and, and kids with tummy pain, right? So thinking about who, you know, who are the vulnerable kids, these anxious kids with these early GI events that we know predicts chronic pain and later depression, anxiety, potentially eating disorders.
0: And really working
1: with them to, to trust their bodies. So doing what's called interoceptive exposure, where you bring on different, you intentionally bring on different body sensations and the kids learn to label them. You know, this is gassy gus, you know, this is Patricia the Poop Pain, this is Georgia the gut growler. And so to kind of really treat their bodies as a source of, of reliable information that they can respond to and know what to do with, and then kind of get to know themselves, like, oh. You know, when I'm feeling this way, I should, you know, eat something and then I won't get hangry and, and that sort of thing and seeing whether we can kind of circumvent some of these terrible outcomes such as anorexia nervosa.
0: Do you have evidence from, from, from your studies that that actually um, make, changes the trajectory if, if you expose kids to this kind of, uh, you know, interoceptive training or getting to know your body training?
1: Well, I know at this point that it reduces their abdominal pain symptoms and lowers their anxiety and, and lowers their fear of their bodies so that they're not scared of their bodies and that they, you know, they know more about they report, they know more about their emotions and they know more about their bodies. So I feel like it's all the, the proper ingredients for, for later protection, but I don't have data showing that it actually reduces the later onset of eating disorders. That's the hope.
0: And when when you enroll kids in in your studies, I mean, do you know are, are these um, kids with a history or with a particular risk factor for anorexia, or do you take all uh, all kids?
1: So I take kids who meet criteria for functional abdominal pain. So these are kids, right, that have recurrent stomach aches, um, you know, over a several month period, and so that's that's how I'm screening them and. When you screen, when that's your screener, you very likely get kids who are also anxious Mm -hmm. because travel together so much as you, as you indicated.
0: Do you think things like, uh, I mean, there's a lot of excitement now amongst these um, um, internet enhanced uh, uh, modalities like, uh, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. Do you think that's another approach that could be tried in, in, in kids that are at high risk for that? I'm not sure if if, if those modalities already exist for for children, but certainly for adults seems to be.
1: Yeah, so, so, you know, so certainly the most effective treatments for functional abdominal pain are cognitive behavioral therapies. You know, one of the things that I was trying to do with this intervention, you know, one, because they're little, you know, and they don't, you know, and the kind of the content of their minds you know, they don't necessarily have access to quite yet. And that, and they're so, you know, I call these my sensory superpower kids, right? These really, you know, sensitive kids and, and seeing that like going in with a more body focus rather than a cognitively focused way was just kind of an interesting experiment. And, and contrary to the pain literature, right? Where it really, oftentimes it's about distracting from pain and not thinking about pain, so it's a really interesting thing to say, could we actually alter the quality of attention if we make kids curious about their bodies? Will, will we actually, will it backfire? Will they become more preoccupied and we've made things worse, or do we actually um, in, improve it because we're reducing their fear? And that seems to be what happened by changing the quality of attention. We, we don't make them more preoccupied, we just make them more knowledgeable.
0: So in your model, um... So there's def- uh, definitely one area, interception, that, you know, there's been a lot of excitement about this like, yeah. a decade ago with, uh, you know, even identifying the the brain circuits that, that underlie that. Um, do you think, um, you know, children are, that are prone to this have a, you know, something has also been referred to as multisensory hypersensitivity, or do you think it's 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 mainly an attentional problem that, you know, they have the same sensitivity, into but The attention and the processing, then kicking in the salient system is 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 off, and 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 that's why then develop the fear uh, of of these sensations.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's a great question. You know, I think you know my guess would be, you know, if if forced to answer, you know, forced to kind of wait, I would say both, right? You know, that there, you know, for for a lot of these kids that I interview, right, there there are these early life events. Right. These early aversive visceral conditioning events, you know, that just from a Pavlovian, you know, like, like even the present, you know, I'm just, that's my early GERD, quite honestly, you know, like what happens for, you know, for my kids who are early, you know, food avoidant, you know, what happens to, you know, you know, pain amplification, if you eat and there's pain and you eat, there's pain, it's kind of the perfect classical conditioning experience, and what happens to memories, you know, how are memories of those very early um, events, you know, encoded and remembered, even if they're not consciously remembered, and does that kind of set this attentional system in play, you know, so that's, um, you know, it's, you know, I have no data to support any of those links, but it's just interesting to me how much those early events show up in the patients that I interview. Yeah.
0: Um. So going going back to you know to to parents that have a child that that they notice you know if, like particularly picky child in terms of eating or are there any warning signs that you would recommend to parents to pay attention to and if they notice there is a um, an abnormal you know uh, development what what should they do I mean what uh, what can they do early on
1: Yeah, I think well I I, I think that we're all getting much better at identifying these kids earlier. And that's gonna be hugely helpful, right? Because I think that d- due to, um, you know, no no one's fault but just our increased emerging understanding about kind of the bounds between what is kind of developmentally appropriate food avoidance, a child kind of, um, you know, learning to be more afraid and more tentative and so naturally becoming more neophobic as a healthy adaptation versus kids who are um kind of stuck and, and fixed I, I think we're learning more about how to differentiate those kids um i will say you know that the kids that i work with it, it starts young you know they you know parents report you know problems even transitioning to um, solids you know chunks in baby food you know kids really having a kind of disgust and avoidant reaction to that but again there's no good data to say like that's your warning sign, you know, it's more just um, preparing, you know, trying to, you know, help parents to, um, you know, work with their child on re- really on kind of anxiety management strategies, th- soothing strategies, keeping the food environment more kind of fun and enjoyable, which is really easy to say and impossible to do when you're anxious as a parent about your child getting enough to eat. Yeah. yeah. It really becomes this vicious cycle.
0: Now, fast forwarding uh, into the future. So for example, you know, a family has a, has a, an anorectic child, that a child goes through successful therapy. Is it likely or how, how common is it that there's other, like for example, chronic abdominal pain persists? So the, the food um, behavior, the ingested behavior component is managed. So the life-threatening component is, 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 is managed. But other things now dominate, like chronically recurring. So, I mean, the reason I ask this question, I personally have a relative, a niece, who has exactly gone through that, and um, you know, has been suffering from chronic headaches and chronic um, belly pains um, ever since she has overcome the, you know, the anorexia. Mm, that's
1: interesting. Yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating you know so the the short answer is we don't know it's a, it's a fascinating you know hypothesis something to explore what what we do know is that one of the most persisting features of anorexia is is body image disturbance and that's you know different different than people think it is it's not it's not just an evaluation component like i don't like the way i look it's the, the, it's embodiment, right, how your body feels to you and, you know, in comfort with your body and, and, again, this trust with the body. And so from the standpoint that that's the feature that persists, even with weight restoration, that would seem to be a, a vulnerability for all the, you know, just um, hypervigilance and, and symptoms and discomfort. So it's interesting to, to think about that.
0: Okay. Um is is there anything that that you would want to say that is particularly exciting or it's a particular challenge for you in, in your um you know in your young career that you, you still want to, <laughs> want to resolve
1: yeah. um i get, you know the, the take home would always be you know so for, for us all the work on trusting our bodies more you know more and role, you know and giving giving little people just good role models of what that looks like, so they, you know, if they do go on social media, that's what they see, as opposed to people who are objectifying or abusing themselves in, the, in that way. Um, but I do, you know, I, I do think um, starting young um, makes makes a lot of sense for because we know who these vulnerable kids are. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah so uh, thanks Nancy it was a really interesting conversation so you updated me because we haven't talked for a while um on on some of my pertinent most pertinent questions and um um yeah good luck with your research um i i can't wait to see some of the outcomes of these of these studies that you're doing and um, so, thank
1: you so much thanks so much for having me
0: okay talk to you good soon
1: okay take care bye